welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Paul Niven, Fund Manager of the FNC Investment Trust. Paul is Managing Director and Head of Multi-Asset Portfolio Management, having joined the firm in 1996. He has worked in asset allocation and investment strategy since 1999, after undertaking a fund management position in Pacific Basin Equities. Paul is responsible for strategic and tactical portfolio construction, as well as manager selection across a variety of institutional mandates. Paul graduated from the University of Strathclyde with a BA in Accounting and Economics, obtained an MPhil in Finance, and is a member of the UK CFA Institute. So firstly, a very warm welcome to you, Paul, and thank you for sparing us some of your time. Pleasure, Richard. Now, you were the first ever investment trust launched in 1868. What's the investment style and what are the objectives for the trust today? Yeah, so we're, we're very proud of our history and heritage. And as you said, we, we have over 150 years as that, that we were launched back in 1868. Uh, the trust is a closed-ended fund, uh, the oldest investment trust in existence. And our overriding objective is to provide long-term growth in both capital and income for shareholders. Now, we seek to deliver on that objective by investment in equities, and that's listed equities and private equity. And as a closed-ended fund, uh, as you know, an investment trust, we've got a number of advantages which we do use for the benefit of shareholders. Just to, to run through a few of those, uh, first, we, we can take a long-term view given the closed-ended nature of the, the structure, so we can use illiquidity and invest into unlisted investments. Second, we can accumulate revenue reserves to help in payment of dividends, which is one reason that we've managed to pay a dividend in every single year since we launched over 150 years ago. And that's also helped us to deliver 50 consecutive dividend rises, including last year, and despite, obviously, the challenges of the global pandemic. The third point is we can borrow to invest, so we can use gearing to enhance returns for shareholders. And finally, and very importantly, we've got an entirely independent board of directors, and they represent the interests of shareholders. In terms of style, we aim to be a one-stop shop for investors looking for equity exposure, and we do adopt a diversified approach. So in the listed space, we invest in a range of focused equity strategies into direct listed equities, each of those Strategies has got a focused portfolio and they invest with a particular type of approach. So as an example of that in the US, we will invest directly into uh, a pool of growth focused stocks and also a pool of value focused sto stocks. Elsewhere, we, we've got exposure to uh, global stocks with a higher yield uh, and we invest using resources of the management company. And we also have some external mandate. So Again, we've got uh, investments with T. Rowe Price, uh, who run a growth strategy for us in the US, and Barrow Hanley, who are a Dallas-based manager, who uh, run a value-based strategy for us in, in the US. Just very briefly, in terms of private equity, we make direct and long-term investments into unlisted private equity funds and also into selective co-investments, where we hold uh, exposure to specific unlisted companies. So you mentioned the US there. What are the sort of sector and, and indeed geographic allocations of the trust? Sure. So over recent years, we've taken a much more global approach to investment. Uh, so 
our investments are now predominantly invested outside the UK. And that, that's in contrast really to the situation before uh, 2013, where we changed the mandate to away from uh, uh, a UK bias, one could say, towards a much more global perspective. Uh, a little under 10% of the portfolio is invested into long-term unlisted private equity holdings, and the remainder's enlisted equity, so you've got an approximately 90-10 split there. And on a geographic basis, going back to that point, Around 95% is invested in, in, in non-UK assets. More than 50% of our assets are in the US. After the US, emerging markets and then Europe are the next largest allocations, followed by Japan and the UK. Uh, sectorally, technology, perhaps not surprisingly, is the, the largest um, allocation. But when you add technology with consumer discretionary stocks, financials and industrials, those four areas are, are where we've got most representation and, and combined are about 70% of the portfolio. Um, I just make one, one final point on this. Um, you know, your style and exposure is important, but I think we have a, we're differentiated to some extent from peers by, by our diversification, by our flexible approach across a range of underlying strategies, areas, geographically and by style, and also this this um, uh, area of investment into unlisted private equity opportunities, uh, which has helped us to deliver growth in capital and income for shareholders for a very long period. So to put some uh, additional colour on that stock specifically, what, what are, uh, perhaps you could talk us through uh, uh, one or two of your, your top holdings within the Trust? Yeah, so there's been a few interesting changes, I would say, which were made over the past year or so and i'll talk about stocks but but we, we we had been tilted and we have been tilted towards growth stocks in general so if you look at the the trust and you think you look at the, the, the some of the top holdings there's many familiar names like amazon and microsoft and they've done fantastically well for us and we've backed these names for for many years in fact we invested in amazon back in 2006 and have been a continual holder ever since and in fact just to digress slightly investing into facebook actually and it was an unlisted company in 2005 before it came to, to, to market. Now we continue to back growth, but given the extent of outperformance, what I would say is some evidence of froth in valuations, and also a changing backdrop from an economic and possibly a regulatory perspective, we did trim exposure to growth stocks in the US specifically and rotated some of that capital to cheaper value stocks in the uh, latter part of 2020 and early part of 2021. Another point I'd just destroy is that um, around about a year ago, we, we also made an allocation to sustainable opportunities. Uh, and this mandate, uh, which is about 10% of our exposure is growth oriented, but it's not your typical large cap names. The focus is on companies with strong growth prospects who engage in sustainable business practices. And that, that, that made investment sense, performed very well for us but also fits with the direction of travel in terms of increasing importance structurally, in our view, of environmental, social and governance considerations and sustainability in all aspects. So and on that point, the, the, the stocks that I would highlight in terms of um, in examples of areas that we do invest, which also align actually with that those sustainable objectives. Uh, first stop would be PayPal, obviously performed very strongly recently. It actually doubled in 2020. We'd added to that, that that position in the early part of last year. It's performed well in 2021 so far. But one thing about the, the secular backdrop that you can see globally, uh, continued rises in e-commerce. Uh, there's the ongoing need for 
uh, and rising demand for safe and secure payment systems. Now, COVID, you know, especially has led to particularly smaller businesses having to adapt to online retail very rapidly. Uh, and PayPal has basically provided the technology, part of the technology which has enabled um, uh, uh, that transition. And that's really proven crucial over the course of the past year. So, so PayPal has proven its worth from a business perspective. And you think about you know, how easy it is to use from a consumer, it's really capitalized on the increase in e-commerce globally. Uh, and very briefly, just from an ESG perspective, they've got a strong emphasis on financial inclusion. And they're also targeting 100% renewable energy use in data centers by 2023. Uh, another stock, which I think is, is quite an interesting example, and also topical given uh, some of the discussions about shortages in terms of chips is TSMC, uh, which has also performed well. It was up around 60% in 2020, made further gains this year. It's a high quality um, chip foundry business, the world's largest producer of semiconductor chips in an industry with relatively few competitors. And that's, that's attractive, obviously. Um, high, high growth business, relatively limited com competition, very wide operational moat, uh, driven by technological difficulty of producing, you know, the need for ever smaller but more powerful chips to to uh, which are in in so many devices that we use today, whether it's your car or your phone. And it's quite interesting, actually. Um, relatively recently, Intel, um, who who would have been a competitor, the Intel CEO basically admitted that they couldn't keep pace with the likes of TSMC in terms of you know smaller and smaller. Uh, chips and indicated that they might step back from their production and focus on the design aspect. Um, now, th that might change, but I think it's a, just a good example of the, the kind of advantage which um, TSMC have in this in this space. And again, you know, if you think about the trends of the past year, COVID has accelerated many long-term trends, um, and, and one of those obviously is the move towards a digital world. Um, and it's critical, uh, those chips are critical in a whole range of different sectors, from iPhones to cars. And that, that's ever more so the case in a post-COVID um, digital world, essentially. And we think volumes are going to continue to increase, um, more smart appliances, autonomous electric cars and so on. Um, so um, the company is obviously trying to keep demand, keep up with that, that demand uh, from large volume electronic clients. Um, but... Foundries, are, foundries that are producing these chips aren't expanding fast enough. And again, we're seeing this in terms of chip shortages to meet the uh, the, the pandemic-induced spike in demand for gadgets. So we think it's a very, very strong story there. And again, you know, from a sustainability perspective, um, they've got a, a low environmental footprint against competitors, best-in-class water management. So again, an attractive stock from our perspective. So obviously we've just been through a quite extraordinary year. How's the the fund been coping in that difficult environment? And and you've also also you partially answered this, I think, when you mentioned PayPal. But did two thousand and twenty give you the opportunity to perhaps mix up or add new names to the portfolio? Sure. Look, I say that the trust has performed well in recent years. If we'd had this uh, conversation a little over a year ago, I'm not sure that either of us either of us would have anticipated markets trading now at record highs and indeed the recovery which um, uh, markets uh, enjoyed from the lows and in fact just to just to, to you know to, to put some context on that market recovery 
the um, from the trough seen in the the USS and P last year in March. Um, uh, the twelve month gain from that low was the third largest gain seen in the past hundred years. So it's been quite a, an extraordinary period, obviously in terms of um, our, our lives and how we've de dealt with the global pandemic and how businesses have dealt with the global pandemic. But from a market perspective, last year was the most volatile on record and the last 12 months, certainly from the low, well, we've seen one of the, the sharpest recoveries in equity markets ever. Um, so really quite an extraordinary uh, period. Uh, and just to, 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 to conclude on you know, how, how um, uh, it was a year of extremes, the extent of outperformance, obviously, of what we might call growth stocks uh, against value was um, the highest for many years and probably the highest on, 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 on record. There was a 30% or thereabouts gap between growth, uh, growth and value in the US last year. So how do we do in that context? We, we've done, we, 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 did, we, did, we did well. Uh, we continue to perform well. Um, you know, it was a volatile and challenging period. Uh, we withstood it. What we withstood that 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 crisis well, as we have in many instances before. Um, just to put some numbers on that, to the end of 2020, uh, over uh, over the last three years, our annualised return was eight and a half percent. Five years, fourteen percent. Ten years, twelve percent per annum. So it's been a consistently positive period for shareholder returns. And given my comments on the market backdrop and the fact we've reached new record highs, um, unsurprising that the, 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 the shareholders have made further gains this year. Um, and, and as we speak, we're up about 9 to 10% on a year-to-date basis. So we performed well. We broadly kept pace, I would say, with global markets last year, which given the challenges, I think, was, was a reasonably creditable outcome. Uh, and again, given the huge dispersion in the market, uh, just referencing what I said earlier on and, and, and to, to, to the second part, I think, of your, your question, you know, what have we done? Um, we have been tilted towards growth. Um, we've really leveled up the, that growth value exposure starting um, in the fourth quarter of last year. We started selling down some of those large cap U.S. growth names and rotating towards some of the cheaper um, areas in the market in the U.S. specifically, such as uh, financials. Um, and we, we, we took further steps earlier this year so that having had uh, or having had around two thirds of our U.S. exposure in growth stocks, it's now closer to 50-50 in terms of that growth value mix. Just because we think that the, the, the valuation spreads are very, very wide. I think there's a great story still in terms of many of these companies, some of the names I mentioned earlier on, whether it's Amazon, uh, Alphabet, Microsoft, fantastic companies. But valuations everywhere are relatively extended. I think the cycle is one where we're going to see very strong growth um, and it's a more conducive environment for a more balanced market performance as a, at a minimum and certainly one where we expect bond yields perhaps to back up a little bit and give a little bit of an impetus to value out performance and we've seen some of that obviously in the past uh, three to six months where value has performed somewhat um, better certainly than it did over the course of um, 20 of 2020. So obviously we're, we're now at a, a situation where a bull market always climbs a wall of worry as they say. Um, there's certainly been some jitters over recent weeks about inflation and uh, interest rates particularly in the states. On the other hand of course the um, 
loosening of lockdown restrictions will provide its own opportunities. So what's your kind of outlook from here and how are you positioned? Yeah, I mean, as usual, I'd say that the crystal ball is always a little bit uh, foggy. You know, <laughs> it's it's never easy. It's always easier to talk about the past than the future. But I think if we reflect back on 2020, an extraordinary period, and, um, you know, we, we like many others were, were deeply concerned by the implications and impact that the pandemic would have in terms of the global economy. But what I would say is policymakers stepped in very, very quickly in terms of speed of response and the scale of action which was undertaken in monetary and fiscal terms was truly unprecedented. And, you know, there was a bull market in some of the superlatives last year, but certainly the um, the uh, stimulus which we we have seen was quite extraordinary, and we're seeing more of it. You know, we're seeing more of it in terms of what Biden is planning in terms of fiscal expenditure. Uh, and and if we reflect, roll back twelve months, uh, while the outlook was was very uncertain twelve months ago, our view was that we would actually recoup quite quickly the lost output, and certainly looking into twenty twenty one, by the time we reached the end of this year, our view was that the U.S. economy would have recovered lost output um, in this year, 2021. And I think that was a somewhat out of consensus view. But I think, you know, why do we have that view? It was really about the, the speed and scale of response seen by authorities to prevent lasting damage. And the Bank of England have talked about scarring in the economy. The bigger they went in terms of uh, policy action, the less lasting damage. And hopefully, you know, and science provided clearly a large part of the solution, the faster the recovery once we could get back to um, some element of normality, which we're all hopefully looking forward to as we get towards uh, summer. Now, we've obviously seen fantastic news on vaccines. Optimism on economic reopenings is very, very high. Um, I think we're seeing in the US and globally very clear signs that 2021 will be a really strong year for corporate earnings. Very likely that some quarters, and we're in the US reporting season now, uh, again, on a daily basis, companies are continuing to beat, but it's likely that we're going to be seeing something like 30% year-on-year growth rate, certainly in some quarters, maybe for the full year. Um, now, that expected rebound, which, um, frankly, you know most, pe- most people know about now, that's helped to drive markets on to new highs. Um, and, and, you know, so you've got, great, you've got very strong growth in 2021, strong earnings recovery, but we've got tremendous monetary and fiscal stimulus and, and to, to 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 your point or, or one of the points in your question on inflation you know there is some concern clearly that all of this largesse is going to start to stoke some inflationary pressure and you've seen longer term interest rates begin to rise investors looking forward to better growth it does seem clear to me at least that the cycle is going to drive inflation higher and you can see that in the data the forward-looking data but one has to put this in context. This is not a return to the 1970s. Rates will remain low by historic standards. But I, I do think this is important. We've had huge debt accumulation by governments. They've spent spent big to prevent economic calamity. And that means, I think, that interest rates are going to remain below inflation for many years. Basically, negative real yields, cheap money, cheap money for governments helps along with tax rises, again, something that's been talked about much more in the US recently, that's going to help, uh, along with economic growth, to alleviate the debt burden. 
so so that might set us in a bit abstract, you know. But but what do negative real yields mean? Well, negative real yields, cheap money, positive growth. That's a bullish combination. Uh, and again, that's one reason why markets are pushing on to re record highs. So I, I think that we're in a really good period in terms of growth, supportive policy, uh, earnings coming through. Uh, with a lag, dividend payments by companies um, are, are also going to improve markedly, although I think we're going to have to wait some time for that uh, as company confidence grows. Um, so uh, inflation, I think we should expect some rise in inflation through through the year, interest rates to mean, remain low. Um, but this is a pretty good environment for equity uh, investors. Um, I do think, to state the obvious, perhaps there are going to be some bouts of volatility, nervousness, on the one hand, vaccine rollout, great news. On the other hand, concern about uh, different variants of the vaccine and per perhaps you know two steps forward, one step back. Um, and 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 maybe just just to 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 to, to conclude a, a few additional points. There is the question about, and it's a really big question about whether we're going to see a secular change in inflation. So a cyclical change, yes. Secular change, more questionable, but probably the chances have risen. And, and related to that, certain market trends. So the US has been the dominant global market for the past decade. Small number of stocks driving returns, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, Google, um, all, all uh, fantastic businesses benefited from move to online. But more growth, higher inflation, should see market performance broaden. And many of these stocks, I think, don't have too much room for disappointment. So more balanced market, I expect, and, and I think that the companies with strong market positions should perform well. It's just that this might extend beyond, for example, some of those familiar tech names to names uh, that have got a strong presence in the low-cost airline space, for example. Again, you know, it's been a really difficult environment for a number of industries, and recessions always entrench uh, the position of dominant strong companies and they come out stronger and i think that 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 will be true once again so it's important to maintain a long-term perspective uh, we think it's right to diversify i think equities do look attractive you know it's not easy to find value when you look across different assets and, and certainly equities don't look cheap but a more balanced approach i think would be my my my, my message uh while we remain constructive you know we wouldn't we wouldn't uh place too much too much of our risk budget on one particular style and certainly growth, which has been dominant in recent years, I think faces a, a not necessarily a trickier time, but certainly some competition from other areas of the market. Sure. Food for thought indeed. Um, unfortunately, that's uh, all we've got time for. So many thanks again to you and for your time, Paul, uh, and for, indeed for those valuable insights. And thank you for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe. And of course, you can find much more by the way of investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now.